everyone. Episode three of Hot SciComm Summer is here. When I started Opinion Science, it was on a weekly schedule, and now I'm remembering why I switched it to bi-weekly. <laughs> weekly is a lot. But we're back to weekly this summer because there's just so much good stuff to fit in. If you're just joining us because of today's wonderful guest, here's the gist. I'm a social psychologist. I usually host a show called Opinion Science, which explores the science of opinions, where they come from, and how they change. But just for this summer, I'm releasing a weekly series of interviews with science communicators who do what they do in all sorts of environments. And I want to know, how do we take research in social science and talk about it in a way that can reach beyond the quirky world of academic researchers? It's a jam-packed summer with a bunch of incredible communicators. And this week is no different. I'm excited to share my conversation with David McCraney. Years ago, he wrote this super popular book called You Are Not So Smart. And since around 2012, he's been producing a very good podcast about the psychology of human bias, also called You Are Not So Smart. The show's morphed a bit recently. I mean, he had Terry Crews on last week, for crying out loud. And it has remained a shining star in the social science podcastosphere. And if you're listening to this right when it comes out, then tomorrow, David's new book will be released. It's called How Minds Change, The Surprising Science of Belief, Opinion, and Persuasion. I've gotten to read some of it, and it is great. Pick it up wherever you like to get books. And I originally had David on Opinion Science to talk about this book because it, it plugs in, like, right into my whole deal. <laughs> But while I had him on the Zoom call, I also used the opportunity to pick his brain about science communication, because he does it so well. So, just a bit of accounting. The first part of this episode is all about the path David took to become a podcasting and book writing sensation. All of that is straight from episode 58 of Opinion Science. So, if you've already heard that, or you know David's story already, <laughs> I don't know, for some reason you don't want to hear it again, you can skip straight to the 17 minute, 25 second-ish mark <laughs> of this episode, after which it's all new stuff. David shares his approach to science journalism, interviewing experts, situating social science in stories that people care about, and the deep purpose of sharing insights from social science research. So, here we go. The Dave McCraney origin story seems compelling to me uh, in that it seems like it was not like, a, hey, I've always wanted to host a podcast about psychology. <laughs> um, so, so what it what, like? What was the thing? Actually, j just to back up a second, when I talked to Rich Petty, uh, who you talked to for your uh, podcast, yeah, and I was like, hey, do you remember talking to this guy? And did, did you know he's writing this book about persuasion? And it sounds very cool. And he was like, oh. Um, like, I, I do remember talking to him, and my main impression was I was really surprised at how much he seemed to know about persuasion psychology. <laughs> and so how did you get that here? How good. did you get to the point where you could hold your own against people who who are sort of living oh, wow. and breathing that stuff as a career? Like I need to go uh, take my cup of coffee and, 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 and look at the horizon for a minute after that. <laughs> That's the best compliment ever. Um, I mean, I'm an autodidact dilettante, like the like like the best of the internet citizens uh, have been since the beginning. Uh, I I started out. Um, I went to school to be a psychologist. Uh, I wanted to. I was interested in therapy and stuff like that. But also, I got really into the humanist psychology domain uh, while I was going through that program. And then, um, what the real start? My real origin story is that there was a poster, like a, a just a some like 
printed out thing that the, the school newspaper had put up all over campus. And it just said in big, bold type opinionated with a question mark. And it said, uh, you should write for the, for the school newspaper. And I was like, I'm opinionated. I would like to do that. Um, so I had, uh, I wrote some very sophomoric cringy thing about how Starbucks had taken over the, the school's, uh, um, coffee shop was going to, they were turning it from the school's coffee shop to a co to a Starbucks. And I made some sort of like, you know, corporations are destroying the world kind of thing, but I made it funny again. Okay, I tried to make it funny and, um, they liked it a lot. And then they said, you should write more. And I was taking these psychology classes and there was this, uh, we had just recently learned that when people, uh, and I don't know if this has been rep, if this has failed replication since then, but, uh, there was this study that had come out where people had, uh, when you're, when you're, when your football team loses, uh, your sperm count goes down and, our football team had lost every one of its games so far. And so I thought I could write this funny piece about how uh, it would look like almost like an onion article where I'd say, uh, according to science, the sperm counts on campus are at their all time low. And then like, I would explain in a funny way about this is based off this research paper. And in my, uh, I was taking a, my Latin professor said, have you seen this? He told the, the class, have you seen this article? And, uh, he thought it was really funny and he didn't know that I had written it and I would mm. get this enormous rush of dopamine, mm. right? I was like, ah, this is super validating. And I was like, I really would like to do more stuff like that. So I was already learning so much about psychology in the way that it was busting up a lot of my misconceptions about how, how we actually work, you know, not, not just the stuff that you're used to doing in a psych 101 or, or early psych stuff like, uh, ash and stuff like that but it was a uh, deep weird things that most people had never heard of and i was just obnoxiously telling my friends you know you know actually it was a lot of that in car rides so <laughs> that was kind of on hold and then i went into i decided i wanted to write for the school newspaper and i did and then i quickly uh the 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 edit the the, the news editor uh position came open i went for that i became the news editor and then at the year for that, they, the executive editor, like the person who runs the whole newspaper, that position came up and I went for that and I became the executive editor. And I really just went all, fully into journalism. And I uh, took an internship at a really small newspaper uh, over the summer when I was still a psych major. And when I went to go work for them, the their main reporter had just quit. And they said, you know, I know you wanted to be an intern, but would you like to just be hired as a reporter? And I was like, okay. And they said, okay, well, here's your desk. Here's a, here's a camera and uh, here's your notebook could you go to the city council meeting tonight? And I was just immediately was working in a small newspaper and I loved it. And I just fell in love with a sort of style of journalism that they were, that they allowed for there. It was literary journalism where you uh, really try to tell a story. You try to turn the, the, you try to humanize the people in the story. It's not just facts and figures and inverted pyramid. And when I came back to school, I was like, I just want to, I want to reinvent our school newspaper to do that kind of stuff. And so that was my life for a little while. And I graduated and I went to work for uh, a big newspaper. And then from there, I went on to be uh, to work for a television station. And this is where the real this is where part two really comes in. At the television station, the position that was open was for someone to teach broadcast journalists how to write for the Web, because that was a thing at the time. And so I was I, I was sort of reteaching everything I had learned in journalism school to people who had taken a different track. And when, when roughly in time is this like 2000? 2007, 2008. And um, then they were like, hey, social media is a thing. Could you run all of our social media? Well, th 
that became weird because they wanted me to curate their Facebook page, which is like today that would be done in a very, that would be a totally different kind of thing. But they were like, like, you know, I was in the deep South. I was in Mississippi and like things like uh, same sex marriage and, and, uh, and all sorts of race related issues and politics. And uh, they were all there and people were, would get very aggressively awfully trolly on, on an early internet that nobody understood at that, hmm. that, at that institution. And so I really started to see people up, you know, up the up closeness of people arguing with one another and being uh, crazy to each other and uh, being difficult to maintain. And I even um, had like people try to, uh, I had like death threats to me personally for curating the, uh, like there was a, a discussion about um, climate change and uh, I expressed what the meteorologist working at the station had to say about it. And that led someone to come to, to hmm. the station and we had to get the police to like physically arrived at the station. Yeah. To, um, cause they, their comment had been removed and this was like early hmm. internet stuff. Right. So they came to the, and so I was just sort of in the trenches of all that. And all of this encouraged me to start a blog that went back to the psychology that I was so happy to, that I, that I loved, but I wasn't doing anything like that anymore. And I also wasn't writing anymore. So I started a blog that combined the two things that I didn't get to do anymore, psychology and, and writing about stuff. And uh, I was watching a lot of The Daily Show, and he kept, uh, John Stewart had this phrase that he would like to do as a punchline. He's like, uh, not so much, basically. And I was like, uh, there was this whole uh, surge of blogs about one very tiny thing at the time. Stuff mm -hmm. white people like, look at this fucking hipster, shit my dad says. These were all big, uh, awkward family photos. Uh, and I thought it would be cool to have a blog that was about one very tiny specific sliver of psychology, which would be cognitive biases. And lucky enough for me, nobody had done this yet. And so uh, I started, I said, it would be cool to call it You Are Not So Smart. And at first it was just sharing YouTube videos. The very first one was the Darren Brown uh, person swap mm -hmm. experiment, which is a, 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 a sort of theatrical version of, of change blindness. Um, and in, I was just like, for me, that was like a super illustrative uh, thing to show people because if, if anyone has never seen this, it's uh, somebody asks for, asks for directions on a college campus and then two people pass between them with a large object, like a door or like a big painting or something. And one of the people holding the object switches places with the person who was asking for directions. So now it's a completely different human being standing in front of you asking for directions and they measure whether or not uh, people notice and they debrief them and ask them. Uh, and in the theatrical version of it, they just sort of film it and make it make people look silly. So I, my takeaway from that was like, if you don't notice that, you probably don't notice a whole lot of what's going around. You probably have a very broad, good enough view of reality that you live off of. And the changes, change blindness is a, is a gateway to a whole other world of psychology. So that, that was the idea. The way it became a thing, the way this became my entire life, uh, was I, uh, my, I got into an argument with my friends about whether the PlayStation 3 or the Xbox 360 was the better system. And we got so angry that we got mad and we got, uh, we just got furious with one another. And it, and it made me feel like, why would people get mad about something like that? Why would we get mad about this box of wires? And it made me wonder, I'm sure there's some psychological literature about this. So I looked up stuff about identity and, or, but this is way back. This is like 2008. Uh, and I was like, it was identity and branding and at the time it was very popular on the internet to call it fanboyism uh, and it's still a thing people still argue mm -hmm. this way uh now it could be marvel versus dc it could be anything apple versus pc whatever it is your android versus iphone 
And uh, so I read an article about that, and it was I talked a lot about Apple because the ads were going around at the time, which was I'm a Mac, I'm a PC, and uh, the blog Gizmodo had just stolen the uh, iPhone prototype that was out at the time at a bar, and it was a big news story because uh, Steve Jobs wrote them an email and said, "Give me back my iPhone," which they had then turned into another story for the clicks. And they asked if they could republish my blog post, which was crazy. I had like three thousand people who were following this thing. I said, sure, go ahead, because it was about a 1,500-word article about why people get so angry about brand loyalty. I assume they just had like a Google alert for Apple stuff, and that was there. And they tossed it into the mix. And then the next day, I had like 300,000 people on the website. I was like, oh, shit, I should write some more stuff. So I wrote something <laughs> So I wrote, I wrote something about um, learned helplessness, and, uh, uh, and I, I put a bunch of new content up. And it, it was enormous, the, the number of people that were reading it and sharing it. It was going everywhere. And I just made it my afternoons after work every day. It was to put out more and more content there. And mm. I started developing a, a, a style of writing, which was down to earth, funny, translated it in a way, like not too much uh, inside baseball stuff. And I found myself reading research papers all, all day, every day. And so I was basically like working on a master's degree in a weird way. I was just reading research papers about everything related to reasoning, decision-making, judgment, and putting out tons of content. And it was not too long after that, um, I got a, started getting emails from book publishers who were like, uh, or agents who were like, this could be, a, this could be a, there was a lot of blogs being turned into books. So all the blogs mm -hmm. I mentioned a minute ago had become mm -hmm. books. And they were like, you should be in this game. And I was like, sure. And, uh, and they gave me a few months to write it and I put it out. And that book became just wildly successful. It was, uh, it's like in almost 20 languages now. And it's, it's, it's crazy. And, it was just the right place, the right time. And the end of this, this origin story for how we got here is I was, they were like, the book did so well, write a second one. And my agent said, sequels to books like this don't usually do very well, but do it. And I, but you don't need to promote this one heavily. And so I thought, I don't know how to promote this except for podcasts have become a cool thing. What if I started a podcast that promoted the book, the second book? And I just named it, You Are Not So Smart, because the title of the first book and the blog were all the same. And uh, I thought that, that what I would do is I would interview the people that had been mentioned in all these essays and blog posts and everything. And that started. And I started the first episode was with the uh, the researchers behind uh, it was uh, uh, Dan Simons and, and uh, it was the change blindness. And I was like, let's get into it. What are we talking about here? And I found that this was like everything that I had built up my journalistic stuff and my psychology stuff and understanding how the internet worked and how to publish stuff to that kind of audience all came together really well as pot in podcast form. So what I had for myself was I was reading research papers all the time. Then I was inviting the actual scientists on to get a deep dives and they would tell me, you should look at this, you should read this. Mm. And it just became a whole world where it became my beat. And so for uh, more than 10 years now, I've just that's all I, that's, that's my professional life is reading the science, translating the science, and then hanging out with the scientists themselves. And that's how it all happened. And, and so I continue to, 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 from this point forward, I'm like, I want to make new stuff. So you are not so smart. will continue to be a thing, but I'm doing these side projects now that are coming into their own right. Like the genius documentary in this new book that is sort of outside the domain of just hardcore. Let's talk about biases and fallacies and heuristics and that kind of thing. <laughs> so it's been it's been great to sort of i was just in the right place at the right time several times a lot of luck um 
Well, that moment in, in, you know, 2008, 2009 felt like a blogging heyday to me. I mean, I I remember I was, had my little Google reader set up that I'd I'd open up every day, every morning and (laughs) catch up on my blogs. Yeah. Medium is, 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 you know, everything's been turned into a shopping mall, but the medium is a close second to all of that. And, but I feel, I feel you completely. I agree. I, I, I was there when pot, when blogs just hit and caught that bubble before it burst. And then I was there when podcasting just hit. And I don't feel like this bubble is, has, is, it's not about to burst, but it is about to be corporatized hard. Uh, there's lots of companies who are making the, making the independent producer is, has to make a choice here and feel how are you going to compete with Pushkin and, and, uh, and, uh, Gimlet and how are you going to compete with Joe Rogan and that kind of thing. Right. So I just keep making my things. Uh, I am a big believer in just like, I make the show, that I want to listen to. And I make the show that if I start getting on it, like I've got, I've become really re- recently very fascinated with like math. I didn't necessarily struggle with math, but I certainly didn't enjoy it. Uh, and I realized that it's a huge level area of ignorance for me. And so I've just been inviting mathematicians on the show to explore that. It's been great. Uh, it's, it's a, a show that started out only about biases. Now we're exploring like, what can we understand about the, how minds make sense of anything by understanding how we, how did we discover this and create this language and what does it do for us and all that? So it's been great. I, I, I can, I can, I will always have you are not so smart as, as the centerpiece as, as sort of the, the galactic core of all the other stuff that's going to orbit it from now on. I think, I think, I hope. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so in terms of the actual process of communicating it, right. So you said you sort of got deep in the weeds of reading papers, um, exploring the whole web of <laughs> this site's this, this site's this, and mm-hmm. here's how I know, like how I can draw a conclusion and what a good study is and what a bad study is. But what I find, so like I, I face this when I teach or when I write or when I produce the show is like, I've come too far that I don't remember who I was when I didn't know this stuff. Yeah, that's true too. And so y- your example of math makes a lot of sense because you're now here at the, at the beginning, right? You're like, okay, I'm, I'm starting this journey. Mm-hmm. So you can lock on to like, okay, remember who I am now so that when I get it, I can talk <laughs> to that guy later. So what, what do you do when you reach that point of like, you're communicating these ideas to folks who have not spent years and years reading those papers? What, what do you do to sort of walk yourself back to go like, at what level do I start the conversation? Well, um, you know, uh, it's been really uh, one meta thing, and I, 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 I damn you, Mark Zuckerberg, for all time, for if you ruin that word for yeah. me. But the, uh, the, the, I, uh, um, you know, I made a lot of the same mistakes in the beginning that I think people were making in in pop science. Uh, I was doing a lot of like uh, this one paper changes everything we have to think about this thing, and I could write an article or or even a chapter based off one paper because I didn't really understand in the beginning. The, the sort of the mechanics of uh, small study sizes and, and p-values and uh, replication and all that stuff. Luckily for me, we had a replication crisis come hurtling into uh, social science. And I was like, well, the best way to address this is get the people who are studying the replication crisis, bring them on the show. And then they came on the show and explained it all to me. And then from that point forward, I've been much more meticulous about not basing things on one study. I do, I try to do things on meta analysis and I try to find people who may, may disagree or are like, I ask questions like, um, you know, what is the consensus? Are there people who disagree with the consensus? And, and I try to pull back and a lot of, uh, a thing I reiterate in science communication in general is trying to make sure the audience, uh, if this is their first entry point, understands how science is done and, and not, not the scientific method exactly, which is always important to remember, to, re, to reiterate, 
but you know, it's not necessarily that the scientific institutions are just doing the scientific method. They are also an institution for the people and they're working on problems and it's evolving. So that's, that's something I came to understand over time and then incorporate it into the writing. But when it comes to like trying to introduce a new idea to people, um, there's a, there's a inclination to, to tell the, the history of the science where you will find yourself getting into hacky territory because you'll want, you'll start to go back to like the ash experiment or the, you'll go back to uh, the uh, Stanford prison experiment, which, which now is, you know, considered may or may not actually have been a thing that really told us anything of value. But the, the, there's a, there's a sort of an instinct, I think, uh, to want to go back to Freud and Jung and just tell the history of, of, of psychology. Well, every time. <laughs> every time. Well, I'm not going to do that, that, that because at this point, um, I, I it, it doesn't, what I try to do is I try to f figure out how does this connect to the present moment and what is probably universal in the audience regarding this one thing I'm going to talk about. Uh, for instance, I did something about pluralistic ignorance. It's probably my favorite episode. And um, to tell that story, I wanted to pick something that really illustrated why this would be important for us to talk about. And that for that, it was Jonestown. And uh, I had learned that somebody at Jonestown, I didn't know this, but until I had found it in a re deep in a research paper, that somebody at Jonestown had actually stood up and said, uh, hey, maybe we shouldn't do this. Uh, and I was like, that's a story I've never heard anyone tell. And so I made that the episode was uh, someone did stand up. You, you ask yourself, like, how could all these people kill themselves and their children? Um, based off this one dude. And it, it wasn't as simple as that. There was somebody who did stand up and there was some sort of uh, uh, hesitancy there. But what got us, what, what pushed that past that hesitancy? What, what defeated the hesitancy? And then now I can say there's this very important thing you should know about the human condition called pluralistic ignorance, because anything I talk about in that regard is not just true in this circumstance. It's always possible that this could happen in context, in, in, Somewhere in your life, this may have already happened. This may be, this is a psychological mechanism that emerges when the conditions are right. And then to tell that, you bring in, I brought in experts who uh, study that very particular thing, including the people who coined the term pluralistic ignorance. Um, and that's usually the, the approach. In the very early days, it would be something very pop culture. Like I would find something like, uh, that I felt that everybody could connect to that was, uh, that was happening in pop culture and say, this is a good example of this. Or I would find some story from history and say, this is a good example of this. So I always try to find the thing that allows you to understand that we're not going to just read research papers. I'm not just going to make, I'm not just going to turn this into a Wikipedia entry with jokes. This is going to be, <laughs> uh, this has to be a story uh, that you can connect to as a human being. Because in the end, what I want to, what I really want to explore is I'm exploring the human condition. And I'm trying to uh, show that these are aspects of our shared humanity and from that there's a shared humility and from the shared humility there is a certain type of unity that i'm always searching for like we're we are all lumps of the ocean <laughs> that got dolloped out on the shore and now we're sad and i want to uh, and i want so we're all trying to figure this out and and being a person is weird and hard and being a sentient entity is is bizarre and um so the, i always try to find that one particular like I, th I think I have a, um, I have an uh, upcoming episode about um, dreaming with a research with a person who researches just dreaming, um, and so like I'm sitting here thinking like right now like I I have the raw interview in front of me and I have the research papers over here to the side, I'm so what I'm thinking about I'm not even I can't start the episode without thinking how can I introduce this topic in a way that everyone can connect to 
and then we can sort of get, go move into the science behind it. So that's usually my first approach. Um, with how minds change, like I'm trying something completely new, which I've always been a fan of on the ground literary journalism, not necessarily full gonzo style, but kind of like I want, I have this new idea for present presentation, which is telling the audience up front that I started out not knowing a whole lot about this hmm. and letting you ride alongside me as I go, as I move into feeling, I start out with, without an authoritative voice and develop a more authoritative voice as I go forward. And you're along for the ride to see how I figured stuff out. Um, so that's what I've been about experimenting with currently in things that come out of just being typed into words. Uh, mm -hmm. but for, for a podcast, mm -hmm. you want it to be, have, I like cold opens a whole lot. Mm -hmm. And I try to start out with a cold open that makes you really feel like, Hmm, I have a lot of questions about this. And then I try to answer those questions through the, the podcast mm -hmm. to the best of my ability. So that's, that's one approach. I mean, there's a million, I mean, I could talk about this for 17 hours. There's mm -hmm. a million different things you think about when presenting a topic, um, for like learned helplessness. One of my other favorite episodes, um, I found this great, uh, teacher who, who induced learned helplessness into their, their classroom. Um, and it was very poignant because, uh, the next step of that was, were women talking about their experiences of learned helplessness, both in relationships and in institutions. And then once that's out there, I can then pull back and go, okay, you should learn about Martin Seligman's dog experiments. And then like, now we can go from that and build up to now. So I've told you about this and then I've told you about this experiment. How do these two things connect? And then the podcast almost you almost chase the momentum of, of, I have to bridge these two things together. And that's, hmm. but these are all palpable things for people to connect to. And then you get into the science as you go. So uh, I have a question about how that, where, how you think the stories live alongside the science. And I, I'm thinking of this because I, I remember hearing an interview with Malcolm Gladwell. He, he was sort of, he was talking about a book written by a psychologist that he likes, but he kind of disparaged because <laughs> he was like, yeah, you know, they tell stories, but it's kind of like, uh, uh, here's a little anecdote. Here's our science. Here's a little anecdote. Here's our science. Um, and I feel like that is sort of the journalistic approach is to go, you know, it's a, it, like the story is the story and the science is like uh, plays a supporting role. But what we're doing is telling a story. Um, and so you could do something where you go, here's a cold open where I say, hey, you ever heard about Johnstown? The end. And now I talk to a scientist. Um, yeah. Whereas like, how do you see it? Do, do, should they be living together the entire time? Can a story function merely as an attention grabber and then the focus goes fully on the science? How do you see those two elements interplaying? Well, for me, this the, the st I, I hear what Malcolm Gladwell is saying and I understand. And also, um, you know, I, I fully subscribe to the, this American life sort of and radio lab ethos of, uh, how you present a complicated topic in a, in a storytelling format. Um, uh, where I might diverge from Malcolm Gladwell is he often, um, sort of comes up with a lay, um, a folk psychology lay hypothesis, uh, and then presents a sort of argument for that. I try to avoid that because I, I feel like um, I, I, the people who I'm writing about are way smarter than me and have been working on this in their entire lives. I should, I should always defer to their expertise. Um, so instead of presenting a hypothesis of my own, I present a question of my own. I say, this makes me think this is true. This makes me think this might be what I'm seeing here. And so what I do is I go to the experts and say, am I wrong about that? Am I right about that? Mm. And where they say I'm wrong about it, I say, I out loud say that to the audience and where they say, I think you're onto something. I then mm. move the investigation farther down the, that angle, uh, until I get to something that feels I may have successfully like 
assuage my ignorance in a way that the audience also can vicariously uh, enjoy. Um, is when it comes to the, the main part of your question, though, like what's more important, the story or the science? Uh, the facts don't speak for themselves. That's that's uh, that's just the truth of it. Somebody has to speak for them. And uh, when it comes to the idea of a cold open, uh, I think in my early days when I was uh, less adept at this story, at this type of writing, um, I would let the cold open just be the cold open and then it, it move on from there. I did that with uh, the Benjamin Franklin effect, which was um, one of the more, one of the first things that got a lot of hits. Uh, and I told the story of how Benjamin Franklin dealt with one of his haters and he uh, very famously like asked him for a big favor. And then after that guy gave him, uh, he offered him a book, which was a big deal at the time. It was like giving somebody, letting somebody borrow your car for a year. And, and it was really big <laughs> to let somebody have a, a borrow of one of your very expensive books. And then he gave the book back to him and said, thanks a bunch. Um, and I don't even think he read it, but th that's speculation. <laughs> but after that, the guy never said anything bad about him ever again, because he had, mm. he had to justify why he would do something nice for somebody. And then, uh, then I took that as I didn't go bounce right out of that into, let's talk about justification. Let's talk about how we, uh, uh, look at our own behavior and then what cognitive dissonance is and all these other things. Um, I'm way less likely to do that now. Now I feel like the, the, the storytelling part of it has to function as a mystery to be solved by the science. And I'm not necessarily going to suggest that the science does solve the mystery, but I say that, that if we were just going to speculate about this philosophically, that's one thing. What if, what, what if there were people who are actually doing AB testing and had labs and were looking into it in a very deep way? Would you, can you believe this dear audience, dear, uh, dear listener, there are people doing that and here's what they have found so far. And then I leave it on the table like that, instead of saying this, solves the mystery or my hypothesis was correct in the beginning. So for me, the, the, yeah, the storytelling has to be there. Otherwise it's just a Wikipedia entry. That's, and that's, I, and I, I listen to some podcasts that are like that. That's okay. But I, I prefer to uh, come across something and saying, I just can't get this out of my head. Why would people be this way? Why would this be a thing? And how is it affecting me? And is there other, are there things I should, are there things that science have figured out that will help me better understand my place in this big drama? And also, are there things that the science has to say about this that maybe mitigate bad effects that are in my life that I'm not even aware of? So that's really where I'm splitting the difference now. And uh, I, as an aside, like this over COVID, I, I, I really figured some things out. Like um, there, people want to understand anti-maskers. People mm -hmm. want to understand vaccine hesitancy. People want to understand the insurrection. And I felt like this is in my purview. Like I, because there are people who are studying this in the social sciences. And instead of trying to understand it in a broad way, I was like, here's a, a scalpel that was going to slice out this one aspect of this thing that we all experienced. And here's what they have to say about that one thing. And the cold opens just speak for themselves there. Like, cause I, I'm like, Hey, here's some anti-maskers doing anti-mask things. And if you think that they're crazy or stupid or weird or dangerous, let's, let's explore that. And then that, then the exploration goes forward without it. It doesn't have to be a standalone anecdote, which is a common way of doing things. I totally know that I've read a million books where they do that. And I don't necessarily think that's always bad, but that's, but I've moved on to a sort of a different methodology. Hmm. Yeah. So, so if you had advice for 
scientists who are interested in engaging with the public. Mm. Um, and, you know, you've read plenty of social science. You've probably you've talked to plenty of social scientists who, as you talk to them, the goal is to speak to the public. Yeah, <laughs> what yeah. are maybe without naming names? <laughs> what what are the missteps that you often see scientists do that sort of is getting in the way of effective communication? And if they wanted to up their game, what would you tell them to do and think about? Scientists, like uh, not science communicators, but scientists. Mm -hmm. uh, first thing is, uh, I mean, this is this I see this all the time. Like, don't assume that the public understands how science is conducted. Um, the even people who are on your side, quote unquote, uh, even people who are not anti-science or anti-institute scientific institutions and that kind of thing, often still have a very uh, strong misconceptions about how science is conducted. Um, I think it's important to break the fourth wall a lot. Explain why you're doing this, why you got into this, why this is important to you, and what hurdles you're facing. Why is this difficult? What is, uh, like, don't focus on the work to the detriment of focus of losing touch with the, the people doing the work. Hmm. Um, you really have to humanize the science because uh, th th we're floundering, uh, fumbling primates on a rock floating through space, <laughs> uh, trying going like, how come that happens? And really put that forward in front and center because people connect to the why to borrow uh, Simon Sinek's sort of thing, um, who I'm uh, doing a, a side project with. Like that's that's true for the science too. That's not just true for like Apple. Like you know, Apple sells products by saying why is why do we make this product? Why do we why did we do it this way? What do we what do we want to do? Why are we a company? And then you sort of connect to that, and then the product is sort of almost a secondary thing. <laughs> but when, if you're a scientist and, and you're talking about climate change, like um, it's important to talk about why did you choose that as a profession? Why are you studying the thing that you're studying? Hmm. And um, then talk about how hard how hard it is. Like, uh, don't take that ivory tower uh, viewpoint of you should listen to me because and I am right about everything. Believe it or not, people are expecting that from you. And when you subvert that, it really goes a long way. And then when it comes to actually communicating the science itself, um, I really subscribe to that sort of XKCD 100 words of science thing. If you your first draft should be trying to explain it in the, the absolute simplest terms possible hmm. so that literally anybody could understand it and then flesh it out from there based off of what you um, you're hoping to get across and do mm. and do have a mission statement to yourself. Like, what are you hoping to get out of this communication? What do you want the person to take away from it? Um, my science hero, James Burke famously said that there is, there's nothing so complicated that, that you can't understand it. There's not, as long as it is communicated clearly enough. Uh, and I truly believe that I don't think there's anything quantum physics all the way to, you know, molecular biology, whatever it is. I don't think there's anything that's so complicated that, you can't explain it to someone who has never heard about it before, as long as you do a good job explaining it. And the word, the phrase good job explaining it doesn't mean the most perfect encyclopedic uh, bullet pointed explanation that's ever been presented. No, it's compelling. Hmm. It's it it, it it demonstrates why this is such an, a fascinating and important thing to why it's so mysterious and what, what this why I could not stop myself from becoming an expert on this. I, like back when I was a waiter, like I remember there was a guy that uh, would come in and buy liver. Uh, he, 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 he would always get a liver dinner. And, uh, but he was, and he was a 
a doctor of the liver, right? <laughs> and I remember, uh, and he would come in sometimes in his like uh, his doctor gear, and I would like I'd say, so what? Kind of, this is how I discovered this. I was like, what do you what do you do? And he's like, I I'm a you know I'm a liver doctor, basically is what he said. And I was like, uh, and you eat liver? <laughs> and he's like, it's the most forbidden fruit in my profession. And I was like, <laughs> and I was like, this you give it off real Hannibal Lecter weirdness to me, mad scientist vibes. And then um, my next question was like, how did you decide of all things to study the liver? And he told me uh, his friends in medical school um, were saying like, you really should get into uh, uh, podiatry. Uh, that's where the money's at. He's like, I don't want to do that. Uh, what else is there? And uh, it's like, well, you know, there's, there's this, that, and the other. And he was looking through it and he said, um, there have been people in his family who had like, you know, had problems with alcoholism and stuff. And he didn't realize he didn't really understand what it meant when you, when people had bad livers and he started looking into it and he got fascinated with it and he dived down into it. Now, if that doctor was writing an article about how you should, uh, about some recent development in the science of studying the liver or that art, that doctor was, uh, telling me how I should be a better owner of a liver. <laughs> and he started with any of that part of the story. I'm in, mm -hmm. I'm in. Because now I now I can join you in why this is important, or I can join you in why this is uh, your obsession, and mm. I, f I find that's really important. This is what I would ask science uh, communicators to do. The, my one-two punch suggestion is: number one, don't assume people understand how science is conducted, and even people who who are on your side may not trust you to just be the the spokesperson for the thing that you've decided that you're going to talk about. You need to, to to cross that gap with them, and then secondly, like really show me why why this is your obsession and, and how you're connected to it really humanize your part of the story and then go from there nice that that is great thank you so much <laughs> um so david thank you so much for taking the time to to share your work in, in the new book and and i'll look forward to seeing it come out thank you so much for the opportunity man Thank you to David McCraney for taking the time to share his story and his process. His new book again is called How Minds Change. I'll boast a bit and say that my name makes an appearance in the book, but David's done a really nice job pulling from many corners of social science and beyond to tell a compelling story about whether we have any shot at getting people to change their views. Worth checking out. This series on science communication is a special presentation of my podcast, Opinion Science, a show about the science of our opinions, where they come from, and how they change. You can subscribe any old place where you get podcasts, and be sure to check out opinionsciencepodcast.com for links that come up in this episode. The show notes are there in addition to your podcast app. And whoever you are, I hope you're enjoying the show. I I'm hoping this summer series will reach people with a keen interest in science communication. So please tell people about it. Post online, email a friend, anyone who would be interested in boosting their own communication skills, whether they be a scientist or a journalist or a person in the world who wants to get ideas out. Let them know about this show. Okie doke. Thank you so much for listening. Next week, we hear from David Nussbaum. He's a social psychologist who works at the Booth School of Business at the University of Chicago. But he's become something of a wizard in the field when it comes to publishing op-eds by social scientists in major news outlets. And he shares what he's learned about that process next week. I mean, the trick that is easiest to use is to lead people along the wrong intuition. Everybody thinks A, but actually B. Um, and as long as the intuition that's the foil here is a plausible intuition, and it usually is, that sort of approach works. <laughs> <laughs>